Welcome to the Broken Pie Trout Podcast, episode 262. Yes, it is 262. I'm your host, Derek Moore. With me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pastorcelli. Jay, what's going on today? I mean, I'm a broken record. This is the eighth time in a row I'm saying we hit a new all-time high, and we closed at the basically at the high right now, right? Uh, there's a, it's a very interesting number here, but Every you know, besides the very first week, eight consecutive week there weeks, Derek. This is kind of uh, the market is is looking strong. Oh oh oh, that's really insightful commentary, Jay. That's that's <laughs> strong market too high. Strong market too high. Strong market. You're really high. bringing it to the audiences. Yeah, I, I so, gave them something they hadn't even thought of right there. Yeah, you know, it's so you and I have been joking around making and and you know we don't think predictions are really worth anything. That's why we buy, we hedge. That's a we don't know necessarily what market's going to do, but we want people to be invested, be buffered, be hedged. You and I jokingly, I think, I would we say by the end, by April, I said it was going to 5150 and you said it would hit 49. No, you didn't even, no, we didn't even pick a time. It was, which happens first, 49, oh, that's right. 5150. And we hit 40, what, 5143? Like mm-hmm. you're right there, Derek. Yeah. I, Look, I want you to. I want you to be right. Generally, we're happy when the market goes up. I mean, there are times where we have positions on that we go, "Whoa, ease a little bit back, market." But generally, up is really good, and we're generally, you know, bullish bias. So, yeah, this is this is great. I ho- I hope you win. I hope you win. You're so close. Yeah, You're so close. It's we promising. Forty. It's promising, as our uh, head of trading Nick promising. Brokaw would say. I mean, it's it's point, promising. It's- if we were to drop to 4,900, right? Let's just say it's a 137 per, uh, sorry, that would be a 237 point drop on the S&P, 5,137. That would be a 4.6% pullback. I don't think anybody would get worked up over that, but it would feel like, whoa, that feels a little serious. But I mean, this, I'll say, I've said this word a million times. And I, when I re-listen to our podcast, I say, I have to stop calling it a monster. This market's a monster. It's, it's strong. Yeah, that's strong. It, you know, the other thing that comes to mind is everyone keeps pointing to the Magnificent Seven. I, I'm not even going to get into that because I'm tired of that discussion. And one of the things I did was I found uh, Charlie Bellello posted something on Twitter, largest U.S. companies by market cap, 1960 to 2024. And the ones right now are Microsoft, Apple, NVIDIA, Amazon Alphabet, Meta, Berkshire, which by the way, I think I haven't looked lately, but don't they hold like half Apple? So that sort of I should go to. I think they're taking some off. I right, they just had their quarterly meeting. I think they're starting to take a little bit. Yeah, off. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Apple Eli, has not been the driver. It's not. It's not. Eli Lilly has certainly helped, and they're they're in there. Tesla, Broadcom, Jay. Let's go back to you know two thousand, and it's Microsoft, General Electric. Cisco, remember Cisco was going to be the picks and shovels of the internet. That I was going to, yeah, you know, Walmart, Exxon, Intel, Lucent, IBM, Citigroup, AOL. I'm not going to go through all these, but the point is, oh, by the way, you go back to 1960, AT&T, GM, DuPont, Exxon, GE. You know, GE is it was a big company. Here's an interest. Let's look at General, uh, yeah, GE for a while. So GE in 1960 is in the top 10. GE is in the top 10 in the 70s, 1970. In 80, it's in there. In 90, 
it's in there. It's number two. 2000 is number two. 2010, it's still in the top 10. I don't even know where GE is right now. It's fallen. It's fallen out. But It's probably not even in the top 100, right? So Yeah. I mean, this is the point, though. It's, it's This index is going to, as companies grow and they become larger and larger, they're going to take over the top spots on the index. So I got to hand to Microsoft, though. Number one in 2000, number one 24 years later. That's something, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You look at the Exxon, by the way, also many, many decades in the top 10. Mm-hmm. Not there now, not there in the 2020. So, but the other decades, 1960 through 2010, it's in there's number one in 2010. Yeah. This is such yeah. an interesting thing to look at, right? That um, the stocks that kind of come in and come out, uh, you know, hard to know how these things are going to migrate. You know, when we talk to the, the Gen Zers, right? They thought, why don't I just own Apple for the rest of my life? They may have. A couple decades left of Apple, but you know, for if we were doing this podcast in 2080, so Derek, at that point, you know, you're 110 years old, and we're doing yes. this podcast. Uh, you know, Apple's probably not in there. There you go. That's, That's a prediction. We'll see if we're right in 2080. Apple's not in the top 10. There you 2080, go. 2080. 110. Yes, that's exactly what I'll be doing. I'll be doing just podcasts. That's the well, only thing I'd be able to do. Is, show number, you know, 50,000 or something for you. Right? Something like that. I don't know. That Fun yeah. Stuff. Yeah, it's amazing, right? It really is. Uh, it really is kind of great. And you know, inter- when you look at this list, right? Microsoft, Apple, NVIDIA, Amazon, Alphabet, Alphabet Meta, Tesla, so we just rattled off eight NASDAQ stocks, mm-hmm. right? Uh, NASDAQ hit an all-time high as well. It took a little while for, I think, for it to get there, but new high for NASDAQ this month as well. So congratulations to NASDAQ. Good job. Yeah, yeah. What's the Russell doing? What's what's the problem? What's the problem, Russell? You're not even close, right? Well, mm-hmm. high 24.58. It's a 2078. The argument is that those companies are most dependent upon debt and they're most impacted by interest rates, which kind of brings us to our next point, which is, and I'm just going to say, I'm tired of this discussion on the Fed and whether they're going to lower rates. Like at this point, do you really want the Fed to lower rates? Because if they lower rates, it imputes that there's some sort of upset or problem in the economy. Like just get over it. Like who, I, I don't, there's no reason for them. I mean, let, let's look at the PCE Supercore, Jay. And by the way, it's... Uh, <laughs> what is the Supercore, Professor? Oh, yeah. So Supercore is basically X food, X energy, X housing. And, uh, you know, like I... In X those three <clears throat> things. Got it. Yeah. If you don't get what you want, you keep stripping stuff out until you do. It's like, you know, the chart <laughs> time frame. If you don't like the 10 minute chart, go to the five minute chart. One of, You'll the, best, find it. Uh, one of the best Derek quotes ever, right? Yeah. If you don't like that chart, change the time frame. You'll so find it. So PCE, by the way, is, you know, they say it's the quote unquote Fed's pr- preferred measure. It's a little bit broader. And, you know, PCE includes things like, uh, let's say an employer purchases uh, uh, services like insurance or things like Medicare, it includes things like that in there. So CPI is more about uh, what households are doing. So they're a little bit different and PC is a little broader. But this idea, you know, housing, and I think the reason why this is coming up is people say, well, housing is lagging and it's going to come down eventually. But so PCE Supercore, um, 
core services, excluding housing, is measured by personal consumption expenditures. That's what the PCE stands for. Jump by 0.6% from December to January, the largest monthly increase in more than two years, Jay. Uh, so, and by the way, uh, super core expenditures account for more than half of the weight of the PCE core bundle. And this is, uh, I'm sure you follow, as I do, the Kansas City Fed blog. Um, I know that's on, on your list to check every morning. Yeah, yeah, but, sure. Those guys are great. It, yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> come on, give them a break. They're good people over there. Sure. So, uh, they, listen so they, they listen. Yeah, but you, you look at this, though, and yeah, I mean, it's... So let's let's just say that again, right? Because everybody is assuming we've licked inflation, right? But yes. The data point that the Fed, one of the the, the one of the data City Fed. Fed uses, right? Yes. Yeah. Is had its highest increase in two years, in more than two years in this past month, right? The December to January jump was the highest increase in super core prices. This. I don't think people are talking about this at all. You tell me why we're at an all-time high, Derek, when you're getting inflation on the rise. Is there a seasonal component that gets you to blow this off? Go, ah, no one's paying attention to Supercore. Is there, you know, when you look at this kind of information, what makes you think the Fed's going to cut it all? Well, I think if the economy's fine, why would they cut it? Like, why would they waste it? They want to cut when... I mean, here's the thing. Let's say that the economy is fine and inflation just goes back. The CPI, regular CPI, year over year, including everything, just goes to two to two and a half percent. If the economy's fine, why why are they cutting rates? I mean, why are they doing that? Uh, if we zoom out a little bit, and you've got the chart there. Uh, this is a longer term chart of the PCE Supercore, and you'll see it. It has been trending down, meaning the year over year. What was it right now? What was it a year ago? The month print was a little bit hot. And this is a little, you know, kind of a trick that you can do with charts. If I compress this and I show just a little bit of time, I say, well, it's it's coming down. Like you see the one I sent you, Jay, a little bit, the one right above it. It's like, yeah, oh, it's it is trending wonder, down. Wonderful eye chart. Thank you. If I'm wasn't blind, I'm blind now. This is yes. a lot of data going on. It's here. fantastic. Yeah. But it's uh <laughs> yes. But and then you zoom out and you say, well, actually, you know, going back to 2014, 2015, I think 2017, I mean, PCE Supercore, and people will make fun of us bringing this one up. But look, people are doing it on the news. You don't like everything in there, you use another one. It's still sort of elevated. So I think the point of all this is it made the idea that inflation is back to where it was and and I don't mean prices are back to where they were. I mean, the rate of change, the rate of increase every year is sort of back to where it was. It's not quite there yet, Jay. And it's I think definitely that, not there. It's definitely no. not there, which is – so look, I could think of probably a handful of reasons why the Fed should cut if inflation was at 2% and growth was fine, right? I could, I could, I could think you, of the reasons. You want to right? guess the housing market? Is that in commercial real estate? Uh, well, sure. I mean, you, you could – well, we actually, you and I both think that it would stop the inflation in the housing market itself. It would make housing more affordable. Uh, servicing our national debt is a, is something they're going to get pressure on, right? Rates at five versus rates at zero just cost a lot more to service our debt. That's probably a more political uh, uh, conversation, which I won't get into. I could also think of if you're so far ahead of inflation on your on your main rate, 
they don't they don't like that to get too far away, right? They like you know bond treasuries to be you know one and a half to two percent above inflation, right? So if you're three plus, uh, I feel that that's an area where they're uncomfortable and they just would think that rates are just too high. So I don't know. Those are three reasons. I'm not saying they're all valid and we could have an argument there, but I think they they would take action if all of those started to make sense to them. But you first have to make sure you're not causing kind of the the double pop of of inflation. And based on the data you're you're showing me today here, Derek, seems like inflation is not licked. It's not even close. The rate of change isn't close to the pre-pandemic levels. There's a long way for them to go. They're not talking about it in all these terms, but these, this is data they see, obviously. So they're all, they're digesting this. I do wonder if they'll do something close to the election. I don't know. I I was at a conference this week in Nashville and uh, ran into a lot of folks that do believe there's going this time around, there's probably going to be a lot of things that happen around September, October and in, in timing with the election. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not the person that thinks the government manipulates things. But look, when you're in an election and you have the chance to have something impactful, do you want it in March or do you want it in you know October and September? You want it then, right? So, you know, be be of recent mind in the mind of your voters, right? So but I'm not I'm I'm I don't really love those arguments. I don't like going down that path at all. Too much the- too many if thens. What's the ten-year tre- uh, treasury today? It's uh, what is it like four four point two, right? Right or about there? The ten-year. In a second, but go ahead. I could have prepped that for you, but I got it. Well, I yeah. didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the other thing: if the Fed, we we just said, you know, why would they do it? They'd help housing. I mean, typically, and you know this. If you take about a 4.2% 10 year treasury and uh, add. 4.18, so you're right. 4.2 okay. enough for All right. Me. Close enough for government yeah, work. I, I'm giving it to you. You got it. Yeah. So I, I, I like that. So let's say um, here, let me do some quick math. What's 420 plus 150 is what? 570 and 170 plus 420 is, is 590. Okay. The, what I'm just doing there is. Let's say the Fed cut rates to, I don't know, whatever it is, 4% tomorrow. If the 10-year is still around 4.2%, typically there's a spread between what the 10-year yield is and what mortgage rates are. Historically, I think it's anywhere from 150 basis points to 170 basis points. And so, you know, it's not like interest rates are going to go to 3%. Interest rates, they should come down. I mean, right now, I think the it's about 6.9% of 30-year mortgages. So there's probably a point, 100 basis points that is left to come out of that if it just normalizes. And this yeah, gets so into it's the- a good point because, yeah. you know, remember what the Fed impacts is the risk-free rate, right? The overnight mm-hmm. rate. They don't impact the 10-year. We know it all ripples out, but they could cut 100 bips and still be higher than the current 10-year. I think that's your point. So they would not necessarily influence mortgage rates by cutting. I think They're- that's the point. They yeah. may not. Remember, that's that's the thing about bonds, right? The there's it's time and rate that matter, right? Mm-hmm. And those are the that's what cause it to be a multi-dimensional uh uh asset in my mind, right? You have to think about all of those things. Um, I think I challenged you last week, and I don't think we did it here. 
which was, you know, how long have we been inverted? I'm sure that's something that uh, we, we could dig up. I, I think this, you know, continues to stretch for a while. And you're right. If they cut rates, that tenure might not move at all. It just might not move at all. I think it was July of, of 22. So we will probably I, pass I think two so. years of being inverted. I think so, yeah. But remember, though, who, who inverted the curve? It was the Fed. Who will uninvert it? It will be the Fed. I mean, and then you say, well, why, why would they raise rates? Because they want to cause a recession. Why do they cut rates? Typically, there's a problem like a recession. I mean, I don't know. Well, you mentioned bonds. Let, let's go there for a second, because one of the things we watch is the high yield market. Jay, the triple C market, and I know you watch this one. I'm, I'm smiling. Yeah. No, no, we do. We have stuff in this, right? Yeah, no. Yeah. So tri- triple C, we use. Uh, we don't. We don't buy. Let's say triple C's, but we have uh, products like uh, you know SJNK, which is the uh, I think it's the Bloomberg High Yield Index. It's, it holds a lot of different stuff in there, but it does hold some portion of triple C bonds. This is the junkiest stuff, and so one of the things I've seen recently is there's been a little bit of rally in triple C's. Triple C. When I say bonds rally, it means bonds go up, interest rates go down, and they're sort of related there. Jay, I mean, the it looks like if uh, if I make my screen a little bigger here, the the yield to worst is about twelve point one eight percent. And yield to worst, by the way, is kind of like uh, it's similar to yield to call. It's you know when you have a corporate bond, like if you had called away or uh, you know. So it's yeah, like you, what's you the, stop yeah. earning for your whole period, right? Yeah. And while you may get a better price, you would have made more if you held it, you know, if it wasn't called away, those kinds of things, right? Because yeah. you earned interest over time. But the yield to worst at 12%. Yeah. And it, it really peaked a little bit greater than 15%. Yeah. It looks like, you know, that's the end of, of 22. Uh, 22 wasn't a, a good year per se for markets. And 2020, I'll, I'll call it 17 and a half. You know, and, and, and the reason why, when, when we look at this, again, I'm going to reiterate something you just yes. said. When the yield is higher, it's perceived as more risky, meaning, you know, greater chance that it defaults. So you get paid a little more, right? So the, the, the yield on, uh, on these triple C bonds, the higher the yield, the scarier they feel. The lower the yield, the uh, more secure that they feel. The secure is not the right word, but maybe the market is perceiving them as less risky. No, that's right. It, it isn't. Look at 2021. I mean, I, I know our audience can't see this. It looks to be about, I'll call it, you know, what do you think? Five and three quarters, 6%? Yeah, like six. Yeah, 6%. No fear. <laughs> no fear no in fear 2021. Well, because what rates were really low, because though this, these will be impacted by rates, of course, right? Uh, These should always be paying a higher yield than a treasury (laughs) because they they should be perceived as riskier, like you said, the junk of junk. Um, Right. And so the move from 6 to 12 during or 6 to 15 during the middle of 2021 through, is that, you think that's the end of 2022, close to the middle of uh, maybe third quarter of 2022. Yeah. And that's and that's rates. That's rates and, and inflation. Rates. That. Yeah. 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 So that means they, they moved from six to 15. That was a pretty scary time to be in bonds. Guess what? Bonds had the worst year in 50 years, and at least in 2022. Not surprising, right? So bonds, especially high yield, were perceived as riskier. It has now come down from there from 15 to 12. 
trying to paint the visual picture of this. Yeah. Talking about, but the point is it's, it's not, it doesn't, it's trending lower and it's certainly not the, you know, no fear of 2021, which was the lowest on this chart back to 2000, but it's kind of in that range with the sweet range of where it kind of hovers. Yeah. The reason why I watch the difference, so I watch triple C's, you can do double C's, C, you know, and then double B's, single B's, triple B's. You, you watch all these ratings and these are just bond ratings. And so triple C, when you get into the C rating, these are the junkiest of junk. These are, there's a lot more risk in those than let's say a triple A bond. You know, you go all the way up the spectrum. But one of the things I, I watched is, you know, in 2022, if there was some credit problem, meaning risk of defaults, you might see the different ratings uh, act differently. So the junkiest stuff might have worse, you know, sell off worse than the less junky stuff. But to your point, you know, 2022 is a rates thing. They all sort of sold off the same. Uh, if you look at the high yield, uh, uh, which one do? Yeah, just the regular high yield. Uh, did I put that in there, Jay? Yes, I did. Next one down. The high yield spread. And, you know, the high yield spread right now, I think at, at the worst in 2022, got up to, what is that? Six. Uh, yeah, prob- probably about six. And right now it's 3.64. That's And what this is, this is the yield spread. So look at the yield on the 10-year treasury and then look at, this is the one I'm using, by the way, there's different ones. And then look at how much more you're getting paid for across the, you know, broad high yield uh, spectrum. And it's about 364 basis points more yield and high yield compared to the 10-year treasury. Um, Jay, this is, you know, this is definitely coming down and, and it points to, I think you would say, there's not a lot of fear in the market, right? Not a lot. No. This, so as we mentioned earlier, there is the rate, the high yield rate that we talked about, but then compared to the treasury in this case is what helps you understand of really how risky the market is perceiving it, right? If treasuries were had a yield of 10% and the high yield was a 12, you'd be like, wow, nobody's really scared, right? You're not getting a premium for taking on high yield. That's why we watch this spread, the spread, the difference between the two. So yeah, I mean, this is trending lower from where it peaked in 2022 from not peak peak, but you know, when it was up in 2022 from six down to 3.6 today and it's trending lower, we, uh, that means the market is not, is giving less of a premium for trading riskier vehicles than it has, you know, a year ago. Yeah. Is it something, by the way, I just think about the triple C chart at the lows of 2021, you probably got the same on triple C rated junk bonds as you do right now in, in three month treasuries. Absolutely. No, that's it. We, we made that swap in some of our strategies that we only need three, four or 5%. We used to have to go to high yield, right? Because you couldn't get the yield in anything safer because rates were zero. Now you could go to treasuries and get very similar yield from before. So, you know, why why take the additional risk if you don't need it? Right. So for a lot of some of our strategies, we we do we've swapped out treasuries for high yield. However, others that, you know, where it's more of a growth oriented strategy, we'll we we like the high yield position we have in those because it's meant to be a more growth piece than a, uh, than a just income vehicle. I, I get asked this too. I mean, oh, we know that high yield bonds are more risky than, than treasuries. Of course, that's the nature of high yield. 
And somebody asked me, well, you know, long-term, what's the return on there? So I, I went back, Jay, and I said, let me look at a long-term chart. And I picked the end of 1997. So this is a total return index. And let me just explain what the total return in index is for the, the listeners. This is sort of if you, if you bought uh, a broad high-yield index and you assume that you're, you're reinvesting all of the, you know, re, it includes the, the dividends or the, or the uh, coupon payments that you're receiving. So it's a good representation of, you know, if you own these, this is everything that you get and then you're reinvesting it. Jay, I looked at since 1997. You know, the end of 97, if you bought uh, bonds, uh, you know, you had 98 was a pretty good year, 99. And then you have 2000, the tech wreck. You have 2001, 911. You got 08, 09, the, the great financial crisis. Jay, you know what the average annualized return is about for the total return high yield index since 97? I, I only know because you told me. But I, I would have probably guessed five to six. Yeah, it's about 7%. Yeah. Yeah, and this yeah. is just... Now, there's Jay, I, I think you would agree. I mean, there, there is some volatility. And if you look last couple of years, there's certainly volatility, right? Oh, my God. Yeah, there is. Uh, usually less, I shouldn't say usually, almost always less volatility than stocks, but the return is also less, right? So it's uh, it's a good muted, there's some correlation to stocks when it comes to high yield. We've seen that over time, but you have that interest rate component. For us, our math, I think usually is 30 to 40% is interest rate driven, uh, 60, maybe 50, 60, somehow I got my numbers wrong there, 50, 60 is more associated with correlation to the equity markets, right? So because there's companies behind these high yields, it's not like the government backing treasuries. You still want companies to be profitable to drive the stability and uh, the predictability of high yields. So the, there are pieces there. It's kind of a way to, you know, high yield can be a way to have buffered, not, sorry, that term is different these days, to have kind of a more muted exposure to the U.S. market through high yield and corporates. I wish I had, I had pulled it. I'll do it next week. I'm writing myself a note. If you had asked somebody, hey, over the, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. So let me throw that caveat out. You don't know? I don't. It's oh. shocking. But right. uh, oh, do you want to know which stocks to buy tomorrow at the open for the best one-minute trade? Grab a pen and paper. No, of course not. So, But if I pulled the total return index for, let's say, a 30-year treasury, people might say, well, that's, that's obviously safer. I think, uh, I haven't pulled this in a while, but a couple months ago I pulled it when treasuries were, were sort of at the lows, the 30 year. I think you're, you would have been flat over the last 20 years. I guess like, the question is which treasury? The 30 year. The if 30 you like, year. Oh, so the 30 years got all that duration yeah. in it, right? And all that risk, sure. Yeah, 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 definitely riskier. So yeah, what's riskier? A 10 year, you know, triple C or a 30 year treasury? Maybe riskier is not. What's got more volatility in it? Yeah. Um, and the high, broad high yield index is probably a duration of, uh, I mean, let's call it, I'm making this up, but six to seven. I mean, it, high, nobody gives a company, a high yield company, a 30-year loan, right? No, no <laughs> just, nobody wants to lend, you know, Bob's uh, electronic discount store. I was going to a Jim's store. Welding. That was uh, Jim's the, Welding. I was thinking <laughs> Crazy Eddie. Oh, Crazy Eddie. Yeah. Prices are insane. Yes. Yeah. That's a good documentary. Even him a 30-year loan. Yeah. 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 So, but anyway, I, I mean, we can move on from this. Sorry, but it's crazy. just, 
And I will, uh, last thing I'll say, Jay, is that no one ever talks about the, these indexes in this way. Like if you just held bonds and reinvested them, all time high in high yield total return index. And you're saying the high yield index is also at an all time high. Yes. And it recovered from the previous all time high, which was December of 21. It's come ah. all the way back and, and exceeded that. There you go. Yep. Feels like the markets are going up. Have we mentioned the market might be strong? It's strong market? Robust? It's promising? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but we're going down 20% next week now that we've said that. Of course. Clearly. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. Well, all right. So last thing on rates is right now, Jay, what is the I know rate expectations uh implied by the Fed funds futures have come down, but how far down? Like are we saying What's it saying? Three cuts, not, four not, cuts in the next year? Not enough, but for my opinion, but yes. Yeah. So the the first rate cut now looks like the market is pricing in for June. Yes, uh, for a, for a one for a cut in June, uh, and then by you know let's say January of twenty twenty five. So let's say you know not a full year from now. Uh, three more cuts from there. Three in a little bit. So. Yeah, they, it looks like four cuts, with three in 2024. I'm going to say three and a half. I know that just the way the, 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 the market goes, you don't go in exact whole numbers, but like three and a half by the end of the year. So that was like six a few weeks ago, yes. right? And you and I were scratching our head. So this feels a little more muted. Um, if I, I'll put you on the spot, Derek. We, oh, you know, we did do predictions. What were in our predictions for how many rate cuts? I, we'd have to pull that up. I don't recall. I'm in the, they got to do at least one camp. I think I was two. Yeah. Okay. But yeah. So this still seems for us, whatever, whatever that means, whatever we know, uh, you know, still seems a little, a little, uh, a little much. And especially after, you know, the wonderful data you provided on the super core. I think uh, the market is predicting three to four by the end of this year. That was six. The market was a little aggressive on six out of the gate. I still take the other side of this trade. It's a weird thing, Jay, where let's say if they have to hike, which nobody is pricing in and very few people are even saying, that would be bad. And in my opinion, it would also be bad if they have to cut a lot. For the very reasons, you know, I won't go over that again. Have you heard have you heard anybody talk about the R word lately, the recession? Oh, you mean the 29 out of 30 leading economists <laughs> who predicted the recession in 2023? Have you heard anything about it? Because <laughs> to your point, you're right. If they got to cut six times, you're probably in a recession, right? Uh, which always kind of baffled me why everybody thought the market was strong, yet six cuts were in the in the forecast. So, well, all right. Well, let's. It's different leave. traders, I guess. That's what makes a market. And the and the opinions change. You know, if let's say Friday, if that PCE report would have come out six months ago, it would have really hurt them. Like the market would have freaked out. <laughs> nope, no problem, no problem. It matters when it matters, right? Uh, Jay, for time to time, we talk about earnings. We talk about you know the air. Analyst, analyst estimates, and we, we've talked about that for the S&P. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the semiconductors surged again on Friday, another sort of all-time high, and I, I forget. I think AMD had a 
you know, a gap up or I don't remember what. Yeah. what AMD's the, running. It's it's trying to replicate NVIDIA. Mm-hmm. Right? ARM is doing well. What was that new one that we have? Oh, um, uh, what's it called? I'm going to get it. I'm going to oh, get it. Oh, hang on. They were added to a supercomputer, micro supercomputer. Super micro computer. Yes. This chart is wild. Started the year at 300 bucks, hit 1,070. Uh, what was that? The middle of February. It's had, you know, a pullback to 905, right? So this thing is, a, you know, tripled, you know, this year, the first two months of the year. All right. So super microcomputer is joining the S&P 500. <laughs> it is not. Yes. No. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. It, it is. I guess it is in there. Market cap in two weeks, people start paying attention. It's climbed past. Yeah, it's climbed past fifty billion. Super microcomputer is replacing Whirlpool. Um, Decker's Outdoors is also joining the S and P five hundred, replacing Zion's Bank Corporation. So it seems, yeah. I mean, you want to know what the the implied volatility of the options are on super oh. microcomputer. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to, I don't even know. I'm going to take a guess. I'm going to take, uh, X earnings. So not around earnings. I'm going to guess 118. Uh, well, that's a good guess. It's 90 down from 116. So you, you you Mm. got the peak there. So the options are wild there. We may have a strategy that sells calls on this. We may, that does a little bit of dabbling in Mm. We may. Yeah. It's, uh, so, it, and for the audience, Jay, that basically implies in the next year, it could double or go to zero, <laughs> right. right? That's an annualized number. So yeah, it's an annualized number. That's exactly right. Well, that's one standard deviation, right? So 68% chance that happens. Yeah. One of those that- things happen. Yeah, I, I, you know, I had this in my notes and cause I saw it and I was like, really? They're putting them in the S&P 500, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we've talked about that. So remember the S&P 500, the earnings, all the companies, they put all the earnings in, in the same basket. And so when you see these, these growth expectations and earnings estimates, it includes all the companies that are in there. So if you take out a company, and this is, again, why to be in indexes, if you take out a company that's maybe, I don't know what Whirlpool was doing, maybe they weren't growing as much, whatever it is, like you're adding companies who are in theory, quote unquote, growing. Um, so what is Whirlpool's ticker? I have not searched Whirlpool in a while. WHR. Um, WHR. WHR. Oh, stock. Yeah, yeah, the stock. Yeah, it is, you know, still $106, but it is at the bottom of its chart. They must not make chips or have any Bitcoin in them. They haven't figured out a way for... Whirlpool Arda. hasn't developed their own AI for... Uh, <laughs> for watching close, I guess. I'm shocked. Let me look at their financials, though. What's, what's their... Uh, people are like, really? You guys going to... Sorry, so, we just got down a rabbit hole here. But yeah, so... Interesting. Little head and shoulders. 16.2, uh, trailing 12 months, uh, a revenue, 19.4. Is this in millions or billions? Uh, in thousands. So 19... Yeah, 19 million and it's in thousands so 19.4 billion in revenue and, and what is super micro supercomputers ticker uh smci all right 
super microcomputer. Let's look at, let me look at their financials and let me go to. It's more out of a name, but I guess it's, you know, we're really micro. Yeah. We're super micro. Super. uh, It's like batteries plus, you know, plus what? What else you got? Nine, uh, 9.2 billion. It looks like trailing 12 months revenue. So, but yeah, interesting. I don't love that Whirlpool chart. They really need to develop uh, some some AI. They should do AI. Remember in the 2000s, Jay, if you just put a dot .com in the end of your company, you had like a, <laughs> I do, I a 40X. Clorox went bananas. We have a website now. What? Clorox doubled. Uh, it's classic. They got a website. All right. Let me just talk about the SOX index. Philadelphia yeah, sorry, Stock. We got off track. Yeah. The Philadelphia Stock Exchange, the Semiconductor Index. Jay, you always make the point, and, and I agree, that earnings or stocks are forward looking. They look at what's in the future. So semiconductors made a new all time high. They surged again this week and earnings per share, the growth, the next, uh, the forward 12 month estimate is growth of about 9.82%. The forward 24. So the next two years, basically the growth in earnings is about 35.29%. And over the next three years, 17.43%. So, you know, the growth isn't crazy this year, although who knows if the, I mean, NVIDIA keeps blowing out their earnings. Uh, this is, I mean, it's basically saying that they see strong earnings growth, or at least the analysts do over the next couple of years. So it's forward looking, right? I mean, that's what, I mean, if, if you think it's going up over the next few years, you want to get in early. I don't, I've had a lot of conversations with people about some of the tickers we've mentioned before, and it's, you know, you you may never be able to buy Nvidia at five hundred dollars again. You just may not because of all the projected growth. Of course, you put it on your buy list when the market has a major sell off. People, you know, just everything goes down. It could be one of those scenarios. But uh, things like this, where the projected growth for the forward plus one, which, like you said, is twenty four uh, months, is you know, gosh, it's strong. And so the mark this. Market moving today is based on stuff that hasn't happened and won't happen for, you know, two years. That's really forward looking. Look at the the, the forward 12 month. Uh, yeah, that's the forward e- price to EPS forward, 31.8. Uh, the forward two year is 23 and a half forward piece. So I don't a know. Growth. A lot of growth projected here. But like, you know, I uh, we have an investor that just says, doesn't everything have to have chips in it? Like, like what what are we going to have that doesn't have chips? Hey, even washing machines have chips in them. Whirlpool has chips, going back to that fun theme, uh, right? Like, what doesn't have chips in it, right? That's the concept here of why, you know, you think about this. You know, uh, when I think back to tech, right, before the S&P split up the different uh, – sectors of a lot of the stocks, right? Google was a tech stock. Amazon was a tech stock. They're not anymore, right? They're commuter communication, consumer discretionary. But tech was this kind of soft tech, right? Which was more like software, uh, you know, services, those kinds of things. But now, you know, you've got the larger part of it is the semiconductor. Maybe not the larger part, but a significant portion now is semiconductors. Tech is physical tech. There you go. Yeah. yeah. How many how many chips are in your car? We should Google that. How many chips are in my car, I wonder? Uh, probably too many. <laughs> probably too many. That was a problem, right? During uh, the pandemic. Couldn't get enough chips. 
which is why, right, there's a lot of effort to bring this on shore, a uh, lot of government programs to uh, bring the foundries uh, into the United States versus, you know, uh, Asian companies that are producing a lot of chips we use today. All right. I got to, I'm going to try and stump you. Okay. And uh, Cisco Systems. Okay. Which, uh, and you can Google, that was called the picks and shovels of web traffic, you know, back in, in the dot-com era. It, it was like, hey, this is going to be the biggest stock in the world. It's, uh, you know, because they, they were networks, right? It was internet traffic and networks and all that stuff. Um, are they at, have they exceeded their, their all-time high from 99, 2000? I mean, my guess would be yes, but that's, but. I'm setting you up here on purpose. Yeah, I know. I, I know. Well, you would guess yes, because all the growth and the chips, but you know what? It could be an example of uh, where forward expectations were just way too darn high. So like you're going to do like the early 2000. All look, time. look at the chart. Yeah. Look at the chart. And right. so it looks like it, it got to about 80. I'm going to say that's probably March of 2000, though I don't know the exact date. And the in 2022, it looks like it got over 60. So it has never exceeded its 2000. Uh, it hasn't gone 2000. back. And that's yeah. Cisco. They're, they're, they were. They're big. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, look, I don't know what NVIDIA is. at a recent high. I mean, I guess I could have been. I'm really wrong here. Right? It hasn't exceeded its high of, uh, what is this, July of 19? Yeah. Yeah. Didn't really pass that. So No. So, no. So I failed, the, I failed, the, failed the quiz today. Gosh. It's uh, You're going to ask me their market cap or something. Which No, no, no. I, w- I wouldn't do that. My guess is it's probably half, I guess. The, the reason I, I just thought of that, I went down that little diversion is, NVIDIA right now is considered the picks and shovels. I mean, the, these tech, you know, the semiconductors and everything. You and I don't know what's going to happen in the future. But I remember in the late 90s, they said the same thing about Cisco. They said the same thing about a lot of companies. I don't know. We'll see what happens. I'll let you know when it happens. How's that, yeah. Jay? Great. Well, we are going through this uh, AI boom, right? So we'll see. Apparently, yes. All right. Let's uh, let's switch to VIX. And uh, I was in a, a discussion uh with some institutional people this week. And the question came up, you know, a lot of people try and trade VIX and by trading VIX, you can either, all right, let me set this up. When you, when you trade VIX, you either have to buy the future and there's, you could buy a future that expires in two weeks. You you could buy one that expires in November. Okay. And when you see the VIX index on your TV screen, there's no way to trade that. That's the spot. You can trade options on the VIX. The options are on the future. If you're buying a November option, you're not buying it on the near-term one. You're buying it on that contract that's in November. But Jay, I, I, I think this is an interesting discussion because the question came up, and it's and it's the thought is you know most people who have traded VIX or in the you know on, in the derivatives and options world like we are would tell most people and especially novices don't try and trade VIX. And the question was why is it so hard? You know, if somebody said, okay. And I'll pose this to you and I'll come in on it after. If I think that the market's going to have some problems between now and the end of the year and VIX is going to spike, why is it so hard to play that? Okay. So the, pro- the thing with the VIX is 
Uh, as you just said, the only way to trade it is going to be futures-based. And that that's okay. That's fine. But what you should realize about a futures-based trading product is it's about price and time. So what do I mean by that? So today, the VIX, well, today, Friday, the VIX closed at 13.11. If you look at the March futures, they're priced at 14. So just a point higher. And you may say, okay, that's not so bad. Like if there's a little bit of a problem, the VIX would pop up. Yeah, I think the VIX would get over 14 between now and let's say the next 18 days. What happens though, is even if the VIX pops, it has to stay that high going into the where that future will settle. So the futures may say, yeah, the VIX has popped, but it's probably going to pull back, right? We call this we reference this as the VIX futures being lazy compared to the spot VIX move, right? It's uh, there's, it's a probability bet, right? It's uh, it's you have to have in this scenario the VIX not only pop between now and then, but be higher than 14 for you to break even in this scenario. So you could get the spike, and you could absolutely be right. The VIX can go to 18 next week, but if but the future will not appreciate that much, even with that short period of time, because the future market may say, yeah, but it's not going to end at 18. It har- it's hardly spent any time at 18 this year. It's going to pull back maybe to 16, right? So the futures will price based off a specific point in time and where the VIX will be at that time. So that's the hardest thing about uh, when it comes to when it comes to VIX trading. Like when you own a stock and you think the stock will pop, uh, you know, if you think, uh, you know, Apple's going to go to 200 and you put your limit order to sell at 200 because you look at the chart of Apple and you go, that's where it's going to go. I'm not, by the way, making that prediction. Then you get to sell at 200 and you get your exit and you say, nice. But if with the VIX, you look at the chart and go, yeah, I think we could see 18 again. It doesn't mean your future is going to get to 18. You may not be able to get out there because the futures have to project that it'll get there and stay there by the time those futures uh, uh, get to their their expiration date. So that is that makes it very difficult. It's not just about price; it's about price and time that make fixed futures very interesting. Um, Derek, you want to walk through a little bit of like what happens in the futures curve because I just told you about you know March, which is eighteen days away. Things look different. You go April, May, June, right? Yeah, I mean, if you go out and there's there's monthly VIX futures and then there's what we call the active one. And the active contract right now has about 18 days left. But you go out further and in a normal VIX curve, you'd expect the near VIX futures to be lower than the further out ones. So if we go out and we say, let's look at July, it goes from about 14 up to 16.8. Now, these are last prices and there's not that much volume on some of the ones that are further out. But you kind of go up, you know, August 1720, September 1767. Uh, by the way, this is, uh, I didn't plan on talking about this, but a little little kink, a little spike. October futures are 20.39 versus November is 18.89. I don't know about, uh, we have a, something coming up early November, right? There's something okay, that happens between huh. October and November. Something must be going on then. Yes. But think about that. So, yeah, so that's the election, a little bit of an election uh, kink there. It's higher. Um, 
that's an interesting one to go. So let's say somebody had the position, Jay, that, you know, there's going to, around the election, VIX is going to spike. Okay. That may or may not happen. Who, who knows? So what do you do? Do you buy the October or the November future? And you're just going to sit on it and you're going to just sit on it. And at some point, and by the way, if the VIX goes to, to 25 tomorrow, that future, to your point, is not going to move to 25. No, it's not. No, because the market doesn't think it'll end there by that date. Right. Well, it's going to pull back. So let's say you buy the future, you buy, you know, call it, uh, you know, 20 and a half, whatever it is. So let's say you buy it there. And eventually that VIX future, if the VIX never really, if, if the VIX is not higher than that in November, should come down the VIX futures curve and that should go down in price. So let's say that eventually goes down to 14. I don't know if it's going to go to 14, but let's say the, the VIX spot is 14 at that point. I mean, that's that's six and a half bucks. That's six and a half points, I should say. Yeah. yeah. That is, uh, you're going to lose like 30%. 30%. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's that's the hard part about trading VIX. So it's fun to watch. It's fun to use it as a near-term kind of predictor of volatility and a near-term speculative vehicle. Some people like to use it to predict fear. I do not. I like to talk about it as a vehicle that predicts speculation. But, you know, when we, we think about, when you look at this, right, it's, it's almost a way of seeing where the market, not only the VIX today, what it's doing, but when you look at these futures, you know, it doesn't look like a lot of, you know, fear is out there until you start to get to maybe what's going to happen in October. And then it's still not very high. A 20 VIX is not anything anybody's going to panic about, right? I mean, the VIX was at 22 just this past October, right? When we were at kind of the bottom of that market sell off. So, yeah, I mean, the VIX, could, it's just a way to, it's, it's, if there's any way to emotionally evaluate what the market is feeling between fear and greed, VIX is a really good one to use. I like those high yield spread numbers too, but the VIX is a really good one to use. And we do, we use it, we watch it, right? It's something that we watch and we look at the history of the VIX and we look at what it does related to the options on the VIX and where the speculation is in it. So it's definitely a useful tool, but I think it's more of a, uh, of a, of a tool for monitoring the market than trading. I think both you and I have paid tuition on trading the VIX. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 We've paid tuition meeting. We lost money doing what are, <laughs> what are no, yeah, really dumb VIX trades. You know, this is years ago, folks, not, not like in the recent history, but at the other question I, I get a lot about the VIX once, once we establish, uh, I remember a couple of months ago, somebody called me and they said, Hey, I, I think same type of question, you know, in the next three months, I think the, the market's going to crash, do whatever. What, which VIX contract should I buy? You know, I want to buy VIX options. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. And once I establish it's it's based upon the future, the question then comes up, well, are, there's oil futures, there's cotton futures, there's sugar futures. You know, think about that though. The VIX is a mean reverting instrument, unlike let's say oil, which is supply and demand. Like you could look out and try and do some forecast and the further out contracts have what's called cost of carry in it and, and different things. But you could make a legitimate argument. Okay, I'm, I don't want to buy the, the contract right now. I want to buy the December of 2025 
because I think supply and demand, and I know something in the industry, and that would sort of make sense. But with the VIX, it's not like, you know, the VIX made a new all-time high. The VIX made a new all-time high where oil futures could do that. It's just so different. Well, you know, when somebody asked me, hey, I want to play the VIX, I said, why not just play the directional movement of the market, right? Buy some puts. Well, I, I and I say, I've, I always say this too. Uh, sometimes, you know, going against, take high yield. You could buy put spreads on high yield because typically if the market, to your point earlier, is, uh, is crashing, you'd expect to see high yield sell off in sympathy. So, you know, that's a way you could do it. You could, you could buy, and right by the way, puts are really cheap now on the market. Not saying you should buy them. If you want to buy them, buy them. But, you know, they are cheap in relative uh, basis. So, you know, one, one of the things, Derek, we watch, and I know I didn't prepare you for this one, but no. we do watch the open interest on the SPY puts. Right. So we like SPY. Everybody tracks SPX, right? That's the index. But if you also look at the SPY, put, which is more of a kind of a retail, you know, do it yourself or index, certainly, by the way, plenty of institutions use SPY uh, uh, puts SPY versus SPX. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with them. They're great. Uh, they just have a little less. They have one tenth the notional. So if you're doing size, SPX is a little cheaper. So when you take a look at that, you know, I'm looking at where we are in the open interest. And we are at levels really not seen since, oh, I don't know, uh, could, this, could this be right? Could this be what I'm saying? Like, it's been a, it's, gosh, like in 10 years, let's see. No, it's probably more like the last five years. So we're at kind of this high level for where um, puts are. So in other words, people are buying puts and they're holding them. We like to do that as a way of hedging. But to see it pop higher than where it's kind of been uh, over the last, I don't know, couple of years, uh, it's one of those things that make me feel like there are people who are listening and saying, look, puts are cheap, hedging's cheap. I'm happy to buy some, you know, protection at these levels. Um, it's just it's kind of trending higher uh, from what we've seen. Now, I'll also add that. Think about this. Right. There's so much more volume now in options than back then. Yes. So you could say like maybe this is really not as impactful because it's just option volumes higher in general than it was, say, you know, I don't know, five or six years ago. But um, I just think it's interesting that we are seeing the volume of puts on the rise in the S&P. I definitely watch that. And somebody out there, it's not going to be me or you, I don't think, but could do a, a volume adjusted sort of level of, of open interest, you know, based upon the, the number of contracts traded. But luckily, Jay, there is something called the put call ratio, which- Oh, what is that? Yeah, that's the number of open interest, the open interest on, on the puts on something against the open interest on calls. And it's the idea, you know, when open interest is really, this is the theory, right? Open interest is really, really high. That uh, that's as people are overly bearish and vice versa. Although we've got some data that actually uh, we think the standard deviation of of that ratio is more interesting to us. But um, yeah, I mean, so we got it. We got something on that. We got the put call ratio. Something. Yeah. If anybody's interested in more, they should reach out to you, Derek. How could they get in touch with you? Yeah, they should uh, send me an email at derek.more at zegafinancial.com. That's uh, D E R E K dot M O O R E. Z is in zebra, E is in Eddie, G is in George, A is in Apple. Financials up to you to spell correctly. All right, Jay. Um, 
any recommendations this week? Uh, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't really get to any new shows this week because I was at the conference, but maybe next week I'll be able to report back on Dune, which I plan to go see, uh, today. So hopefully I'll have a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down on it. Everything looks to be strong on it, but we, we shall see. I don't know what the forward PE ratio on, uh, on Dune is right now, but I'm optimistic. Yeah. So there's been two movies and I didn't see the, the, the last most recent one. I do remember seeing the, was it in the eighties with Sting? Sting was in the movie, right? In the old Dune and, that's right. And then, and it was very confusing as, as someone a little younger watching that. So what was this spice thing? There's these giant worms and Sting is in this. So yes, that's, that's true. That was, uh, that was back then. Then there was a TV show for a little while. It didn't, it didn't really make it. How random is it? I don't know if Sting did any other acting, but the fact that he was in there. I feel like he has, but he had, a, he, he had a decent role as I recall. Now, now I'm going to, uh, Internet movie database uh, stings. Uh, oh yeah, we need. Yeah, we need to do this live. This yeah, is, yeah. our audience cannot wait for this information. You know, this. Well, is, why don't you go? <laughs> do you have any recommendations? Uh, well, I have. I have a. I, I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet, and I think it's on one of the streamers. Is it? You haven't Peacock? seen it, huh? You, you no. were spending all your time with Barbie, weren't you? Now the I, truth no. is coming out. No, I, come I, I've out. Not seen that. That's, I'm not. <laughs> That's not a movie I'm I'm going to see ever, probably. Uh, so, yeah, I, I do want to watch that eventually. And uh, there's, I think it's on, is it on Netflix? There's a there's a new movie about BlackBerry, which I yeah, saw a preview I for. That. I have not watched that yet either. I I kind of you know those stories are always interesting to see how how tenuous it was at the beginning of the company. And BlackBerry is fascinating because I don't. I mean, all of us in corporate America had a BlackBerry. I mean, I couldn't believe when they when those went away in popularity. I mean, we all had those, and I they were great. The keyboard. I miss the keyboard. I do too. The thumbs on the keyboard. Thumbs on the keyboard. I was I was a whiz. I'm not so fast on the uh, on the digital keyboard. I use. No, it. I feel like I still make mistakes on on the uh you know the, for sure i do what would blackberry have had to do to so they probably it was oh, the sure. fact they didn't have apps right apps. yeah they, and they by the way they did have apps we had i'm going back to our ameritrade days we had a trading app we were one of the first trading apps on blackberry actually also the first trading app on apple but it's a different story but yeah we had a trading app on blackberry i think it was the navigation of you know touchscreen that that was really their downfall probably yeah like i feel like if they came out with a blackberry today i might it i might be interested in buying it maybe not hey, somebody write that down sell Derek blackberries got it I, I will tell you, though, that now I wasn't part of this team, but I'm going back to this is probably late 90s. And uh, uh, talking to us, I was, I was in San Francisco and at a dinner, and this guy takes out his phone. It's a BlackBerry. And it, was, it wasn't even the color screen. It was you know, the black and white screen. And I'm like, what, what are you doing? And he, he placed a trade. I'm like, what do you mean you placed a trade? I, from memory, he was on the test team for to be able to do mobile trading on a BlackBerry, and I was fascinated. I mean, this could have been like '97 for all I'm, you know, from remembering. Um, yeah, kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. I mean, well, I haven't found very. He's Sting has some little, you know, spots here and there, but 
Dune was one of the bigger uh, bigger roles for him. Tina Turner was in uh, Mad Max, right? Yeah, uh, second one, Thunderdome. So yeah, second, Thund- third. But the new Thunder Mad Max Dome. movies coming out, it looks great. All right, there you go. All right, we have we have really no value to add to the audience <laughs> today. We're just. Um, I was going to tell you, don't tell me what happened in F one either, because I taped that uh, yesterday. One of our traders told me about qualifying. I was like, don't tell me, don't okay. tell me I'm taping it. So. There you go. All right, that's it, Jay. Let's call it. All right, Darren. See you, everyone. Next week. Maybe Take another care. new high. We'll see. Uh, all right. Well, let's – do you We're think there's going to be a new high? With Van Halen. Just get ready for some 5150. 5150. You're going to figure it out. I'll get the licensing. See you, Jay. Bye.